0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. I'm starting to get excited about a big day coming up, toward the end of January. And no, I'm not talking about January 20th, but a few days later, January 25th. Yes, that is the day that is known as National Opposite Day. That's a day dedicated to doing or saying things that are opposite, like saying things like, Broccoli is my favorite food. Man, I can't wait for Monday. (laughs) However, when you think about it, Declaring it opposite day means it is not, in fact, opposite day, because the opposite of opposite day would be normal day. But I digress. I think that's getting too deep. There once was a Seinfeld episode uh, on a TV show where George Costanza realizes his life is going nowhere, and he needs to mix things up, and so he decides he's going to do things opposite of his normal thoughts and impulses. And before the show's over, he suddenly becomes an active, sincere, and honest person. Anyway, have a horrible national opposite day. And yes, you're welcome. So, what does this have to do with anything? Well, our passage this week is Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, known as the parable of the unjust judge. And in it, the Lord will teach us something about God by using contrast, a contrast that's so significant we'll see it as opposites. And we're to learn and to be encouraged by this opposite contrast. And the parable will teach us about God via contrast, but it'll also tell us some things about the future and about faith and about prayer. Now, remember last week in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, that passage we went over, it all started when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, it says, verse 20, Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. In fact, he goes on to say, it is here in your midst. So the Pharisees asked him this question, probably trying to trick him up or snare him in some way, uh, in light of perhaps his last teaching that he had on the kingdom, which was a few chapters earlier. In Luke 13, 34 and 35, Jesus had actually indicated that the kingdom was postponed. When he said, "Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he's telling Jerusalem and the Jews there'll be a postponement to the kingdom as he had come to be their king and they rejected him. And to the Pharisees he told them, but when they asked, "When will the kingdom come in Luke 1720," he said, "It's in your midst." In other words, if the kingdom is in the midst, the king would be and yes, that might be a little vague, vague, but he told them that. But then the rest of the passage in Luke 17:21 and beyond, he takes his disciples aside and gives them a much more lengthy and, uh, explanation. Do you remember? He said he pulled them aside. He said, now you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't. So don't fall for anyone who says it's here or it's there. It's going to appear like lightning in the sky, he told them, sudden and obvious. But first, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's what he just talked about in Luke 13. Then he went on to say, now, just like the days of Noah and in the days of Lot and Sodom, there was everyday life, everything seemed fine, and then sudden destruction. Even so will be the second coming when the Son of Man comes. Remember, he said there'll be two in the bed, one taken, two in the field, one taken, and one is left. In this case, the one taken is taken away for judgment. The one that is left then enters into this kingdom, but it'll be sudden. It'll be instant. And then the end of the passage last week, the disciples asked, where? And he answered that where the eagles gather together for this great feast of carcasses, indicating that there will be a lot of destruction when he comes. Well, immediately following that passage last week, Luke chapter 17, we begin chapter 18 and the parable. The parable of the unjust judge, it is often called. And following this glimpse of the coming future of the king, Jesus says, here's a parable. And this parable is really relevant to what he just said. We begin in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, when it says, Then he spoke a parable to them, and here's why, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So this parable is designed to encourage us to pray and not lose heart. And as we'll see, this prayer is specifically related to the coming kingdom. We'll see this later in the parable. Now, this sort of prayer we can see in this passage is right. It's appropriate. By the word ought indicates appropriate. And there's an element of time here, always. So this actually hints at a time interval as you're waiting for the kingdom over a period of time, and it's an antidote to losing heart, because when you pray, then you will not lose heart, as uh, uh, the prayer is success, successful in bringing that about in our life. So we get into the story in that chapter 18. We'll just look at verses 2 and 3 first, where Jesus says, <clears throat> There was a, a certain city, excuse me, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city. And she came to him, saying, "Get justice for me from my adversary." So here's the setup. We see two individuals in a particular city. We see that the judge there's two you know two characters we see the judge is a public official. He is a judge as one who has authority to settle matters and to render justice. In fact, it's an important job. Uh, we think back in the Old Testament in second chronicles nineteen, an important passage in verses five through seven. We're told where a king had set up, he said, He set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. So there was a call that this was a sacred duty, this was an honorable or a noble task, a noble office, a sacred trust. And we see this judge, though, in our parable, our story, this judge, particularly, two things said about him, he does not fear God, nor does he have regard for man. It's almost the opposite of what is declared here in Second Chronicles 19, or what is the intention of this office. Now, he doesn't have fear of god he doesn't have reverence or respect for the lord there's no deference it's all pure irreverent and it says he does not have regard for man or others he has no respect he doesn't give honor to others in fact he doesn't care about others the new living translation in their 1996 version t- treated this verse this way with great contempt for everyone So the idea is, here's a judge, he doesn't have any regard for the norms and the standards and the expectations of even a society, has no regard for the sacred uh, importance of his office and his duty, no fear concerning about God, no proper honor for man, and so forth. So here's a me first mentality, irreverent, uncaring, lacks empathy, breaks norms, narcissistic, devoid of honor, shameless, a real peach and there was in the same city Jesus went on a widow. Now widows were typically dependent and more helpless and very vulnerable in those societies. Um those societies weren't did not treat widows, uh widows well at all. In fact, Lamentations 1 1, uh Jeremiah starts this his this book of the Bible by saying, How lonely sits the city that was full of people, as he, how like a widow is she, who was great among the nations the princess among the provinces, and has become a slave. Notice, here's the fall of a widow who had a great prestigious place in a home with a husband and so forth, economic stability. How great the fall. Widows definitely it was an unfortunate plight to be fallen into. They were frequently in the scripture classed with the fatherless and orphans. And in the Jewish law, there were laws in place to protect them from the unscrupulous. Because they were so easily taken advantage of, legally, economically. And this widow came to him, our story continues in Luke 18, and she came to this judge, and grammatically, the idea there is that she could have, could be uh, uh, kept coming, she came with frequency, and she said, Get justice for me. And what she's saying is, judge, execute justice, defend my cause, maintain what is right. She obviously has a case. She is being wronged, and she has an expectation for something for this judge to do what is right, and for the judge to be one of just a, a, a judge of justice. And so she has an anticipation or even an expectation, and she wants to get justice from my adversary. Now, this is a term that's used as a legal opponent, one who brings a lawsuit or the one who's accusing you and it's a very strong term. it sometimes is even could be like an enemy, my enemy, because you see an adversary could ruin a widow. By going after her unscrupulously or going after her wrongfully, imagine again in this culture, women do not have full rights anyway, and widows are the true down and outers, often taken advantage of. They're easy prey by who? Who would take advantage of widows? Were people who are greedy or unjust, who are unfair, selfish. You know, the kind of people the judge would probably hang out with, as we saw the description of the judge. These are the people that he would be his peers and he would want to be in good standing with. So why would he take up the cause of losers like this widow? You know, she, who are you? Uh, he doesn't want to be known as a softy for that kind of thing. So Luke chapter 18 tells us as the story goes on, what happens? We see the story is set up. We have these two individuals. They're in the same city. We have a judge. He's got some character flaws. We have a widow. She's being under attack. Verse 4, what it is is what after she says, get justice for me, we read, he would not. And he would not, it says, for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So now we see uh, the story has been set up. We see the two characters, and now we see some time has gone by. He would not for a while. So he just says to this woman, no. Get justice for me. No. Get justice for me. No. Next day, I implore you to do what is right. No. You know, he's not returning her phone calls. He's not responding to her texts. He's not home when she knocks on the door. He's got his excuses. He's ignoring her. He's telling her no. And why is he doing that? It doesn't say, the text here doesn't say why he's initially saying no, but obviously he's not interested in her case or doing what is right. And he doesn't probably want to step out and be unpopular with these dishonorable peers, right? They're, he's also corrupt. So, hey, everyone scratches each other's backs. They're all working in concert here, perhaps. And the woman, she's the one who's out, the loser. But again, we have a time element. She, he, he wouldn't do it for a while. But then it says he said afterwards. So, again, we have a time element. Time has gone by, and we have but. But he, there's a contrast. Something causes him to pause. After there's been a delay and a gap in our story, she's been coming consistently. He's rejecting her consistently. But now he stops and he says within himself. And guess what we have here? Another soliloquy. You getting tired of that term? We saw it in the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. He had a soliloquy in his whole plan, how he's going to Go back. We saw it in chapter 16 right after that, the unjust servant in that parable, how he had a plan so that he'd have a place to stay when the the master uh, fired him. So now we see a soliloquy with the unjust judge here in Luke 18. All three of them had selfish reasons. The son had a self-preserving plan in Luke 15 to to stay alive. The unjust steward had a self-preserving plan to have a place to stay. And now the unjust judge will see what is his self-preserving plan. Well, when you have a soliloquy, the story, that means it's going to tell us exactly what he's thinking. and How is it that he is motivated? Why will he do what he does? So here's his thinking. He reasons with himself, first of all, though I do not fear God nor regard man, he says. <laughs> a repeat of the earlier assessment, which means where the Spirit of God in the text here is putting emphasis on his character. But this time he himself is asserting it. So this is him saying, yeah, this is true. That's who I am. Yep. And he doesn't have any problem with that. I do not fear God or regard man. So you notice his reasoning is not vertical. He's not thinking about giving her justice because of something between him and God. And it's not horizontal. He doesn't care about the injustice or what's the honorable thing to do. His reasoning is totally inward and self. It's all about him. Because he says, because this widow troubles me. He's stating a reality. She must be bugging the snot out of him, right? He says, because she's troubling me, I will avenge her. Okay, okay, okay. I'll get you justice. Just be quiet. Shut up. Stop bothering me. So he's going to publicly defend her cause and uphold her case against her adversary, who would be a like-minded peer, who would not be pleased with this sudden do-what's-right-whatever-in-the-judge. Because he normally always would avoid this. And the reason is now in the last phrase there, lest by her continual coming she weary me. This is why. And it's all about himself. Now, it's important to note the word weary here is only used twice in the Greek New Testament. And in both cases, it has its own little nuance of meaning. The one what is in this case where you would tend to think that he's saying, she weary me, she tire me out with her constant pleading, you know, like a child in a in a grocery store that's going to, I want this candy, I want this candy, I want this candy, you know, and you can finally wear the person, the mother down. So that's one way of taking it. That certainly fits the context that could be. But the other way you can take it is to be have to blacken the eye, to like be shamed on someone, to blacken the eye. And here's what I would suggest. This judge doesn't care about the injustice. He doesn't care that the widow is in a plight or anything, he doesn't care a whit about her. But her perseverance and her continual coming and her hope and expectation for justice begins to become wearisome to him, but also as she's coming, it's becoming more and more known every day. Every day she's there, she's making her case, she's talking to people. It's becoming perhaps a little bit more uh, understood amongst the community, and uh, and per- per- this would probably mean her case is pretty open and shut. How is it she's not getting justice? So at, at some point, he realizes that she could give him a black eye, though he doesn't care about man. He, he can't have them uh, viewing him. Let her view him, have them view him in such a negative light. So the unjust judge hears the cry of the widow, ignores it, is annoyed by it, but eventually he acts out of purely selfish motives. He doesn't want to have her ruin his pop position or anything else. He's He doesn't care one whit about what's right, but just get out of his hair, leave him alone, but also do not blacken the eye. So we get to Luke chapter 18, now 6 through 8. As we now see, the Lord is going to apply this parable. And he starts in verse six by saying, then the Lord said, because our story's over, hear what the unjust judge said. So now we see something different. We have the adjective unjust put before judge in the English text. The unjust judge is now what he's described as. But it's not an adjective in the original, it's a noun, which means this is the quality or substance of the judge. You know, um, in Acts one eighteen, the same word unjust is used of Judas, describing Judas, how he purchased a a field with the wages of iniquity. Or in Luke 13.27, Jesus said, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. So this is a justice, a judge rather, of injustice. So this is really a deep-seated uh, description, a judge of injustice, <laughs> the total opposite. This is, this is an oxymoron. So he's the total opposite of what he's supposed to be. And So we're directed to look and listen to what the unjust judge said, hear what the ju- unjust judge said, and we hear that in a soliloquy. So, we're directed to what he said in the soliloquy. And what he did is he, is, is he said, you know, um, I'm not a the man who regards God, et cetera, but I will do this lest she weary me. So, what Jesus then says in verse 7 in the parable, he says, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. So, he says, in a double negative sense here, does not, will not God surely carry out justice? And of course, that's an answer question here that means, yes, of course he will. We're going to see in verse 7, two questions that are brought out, both anticipating a positive answer. And yes, God shall execute the avenging, is what the idea is. The NIV translates it, God will not, he will bring about, will, excuse me, will not God bring about justice in a question format and he'll bring it about for his own elect. Now, this is an adjective describing his own people. This is relational, his chosen nation. The Jews were his chosen people and his personal people, the nation, and but they're personally connected to him. And these people, the Jew, the nation would cry out day and night to him. Present participle, they're describing what they're doing. They're They're Crying out with an anguish cry, a pleading. This is an emotional term, even kind of like a, an elevated voice. And we have a time element again, day and night. Day and night would be, kind of fit in with the idea of we should pray always back up in verse 1. So we have a time element, day and night, and there's a direction element. It's to the Lord, to Him. And so does God hear the cries of His people? Yes, in fact, these people are doing exactly what the widow was doing as it relates to the parable. She was coming over and over to the unjust judge. And now he's saying, now shall not God, who's just as you compare to the unjust judge, he's the opposite. Shall he not avenge them, though he bears long with him, the end of verse 7. The idea is, though he is patient and in in, there's delay in his response. In other words, they're crying out in a present participle way. And what's describing them is they're in anguish and crying out to the Lord. And the Lord is forbearing or bearing long with them, also in a present participle. This is what he's doing. He's long suffering. He's not acting instantly upon them and their cry for justice. There's a delay. There's this, what's going on? But the word is, he's. Forbearing, he's bearing with them. It's a positive term. It reflects his patience, as opposed to hasty or sudden anger, etc. So it's patience in the Lord's case versus impatience in the unjust judge's case, who hastily says, "Ah, I've had it, and then grants the justice. So verse 7, Paul brings two questions, both with an expected answer of yes. Shall God not avenge his own elect who try to, uh, to cry out to him day and night? Yes, he definitely will. In fact, it's in the form of a negative, but it's an ume. It's the most strongest negative. And since it's using that double negative format, uh, the idea is it's a the strong positive. Will not God avenge his elect? Absolutely, yes. And is he bearing long with them or being patient about it? And the answer also is yes. Now, if that second second question belongs, is applying to his elect, what is he being patient about with them? He's not being patient about them crying out to him because they're coming to him day and night. They're coming to him all the time. There's no reason for him to be patiently waiting. They're always coming. So it's not in that personal sense, but he could be patient toward their cry for justice as it relates to the content and the request of their cry. He's not acting immediately upon their request. And this, again, fits the idea of a delay period that has been hinted at all along here, Luke 17 and into here. And and what he's saying is, yes, God will vindicate, but he's patient about when. And there's a reason. He's forbearing. In fact, uh, Luke 17, 20, isn't this what started this whole thing with the Pharisees we went over? Remember, they said, when will the kingdom come? And so he's still on this... Idea: This kingdom will come, but you at its own time, after a period of God's forbearing. But in the meantime, you pray. Now, in verse eight, the final verse, he says, "I tell you," which is authoritative. Jesus is now going to bring it home here, and he's going to I tell him what's what's happening to come down here. So, in verse eight, Jesus says, "I tell you," I might be forbearing, or there's there's going to be this time of forbearing. So there's a pause. Wait for it. But then I will come and avenge them speedily. Jesus says, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. It's in the future tense and it's coming. And It's a statement of reassurance. Yes, he's coming, and he's coming speedily. And again, this word has, there's two nuances of meaning. It's only uh, used a few, few times in the New Testament. Um, one is it's shortly around the corner, like something that will happen soon. Or the other nuance would be is quickly, fast, sudden. And in light of Luke 17, the context of lightning appearing in the field, or suddenly uh, Noah's day, sudden destruction, or two in the field and one taken, etc. when you combine all of that, it's best to see this here as he will come and it'll be quickly, happen fast. Or you could combine them and say, when the time comes, he will suddenly act. So we get to the last phrase now. He's saying, yes, you wait for it. He is coming. He will bring about justice and vindication speedily. And finally, in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, we end with, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When he comes. Nevertheless can just be translated as, however, However, when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus Christ's second coming, that directly links us back now to the Son of Man coming and that he mentions in Luke 17, and so we know we're on that topic. The second coming is how God answers his people's cry. It's how he brings vindication for Israel, his chosen nation. And they will recognize him as the Messiah, and they will cry for Jesus. We know that, so I'm just going to get technical for a minute. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses was wrapping things up with the children of Israel before they entered the promised land, he's talking about a future time, and he's mentioning even there in the context some of Israel's enemies. And he says, the Lord is saying, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot, the adversary, shall slip in due time. The day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come quickly hasten upon them future time of vengeance God is talking about and a quick, sudden destruction. Verse 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants at that time. When he sees that their power is gone and there was no one remaining bond or free, when he sees their power is gone, he comes and quickly vindicates his people. When is their power gone? What does that mean? Well, another important prophecy in Daniel 12 will tell us that after all these great prophecies toward the end of the book, they're wrapping it up and they're telling Daniel when this will happen. He asks, when will this happen? And it will be for a time, a time, and ha- times and half a time. or are in three and a half years. After that, when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. The power of the Holy People means their stubborn resilience in saying no, no he, we don't we're looking for the Messiah, and Jesus is not the Messiah, etc when their self will and such will finally be shattered or as um Deuteronomy said their power is gone, then these things will happen. Then Jesus comes and he comes and they recognize him in mass as their Messiah, and he comes and he Uh, as the battle of Armageddon, that's where the eagles come in and so forth. We read all this at the end of Revelation and he sets up his kingdom. So when the son of man comes, will he really find faith? The word really is just a particle. It's setting up an interrogative grammatically. Normally is not translated. So what you'll find in most major translations is will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith? And here it's the definite article, um, the faith interesting. Will he find the faith on earth? That means a particular faith has been viewed. And faith, as we know in general, is to be persuaded so as to trust, to have confidence. So he's referring for when he comes, will he find? It means he's looking. He's looking for a specific faith the faith that believes that vindication will come, the kind of faith the widow had, the kind of faith that believes against all odds, the kind of faith that's connected to the king coming and establishing his kingdom and waiting, crying out and waiting. This faith here is referring to that which belongs to the one who's praying and not losing heart, as the parable started in verse 1. What is an act of faith? Prayer. And that prayer is to God during the delay, persuaded, confident that he will come, that his attributes remain consistent and true. Future things, you're waiting on him for the second coming. When the Son of Man comes, he'll be looking for this kind of faith, that which is waiting for that vindication in that time and expectation. So, this when he says this question format, will he find faith on earth? This is not designed to be a beat down or a ridicule, like things are so bad, you're such lousy, stupid little kids, you know, and it's a jab at the disciples and so forth. Why would he do that? No, the question is designed to stimulate application to the disciples. Will he find this? This is like an exhortation for them. So, keep praying. Because you know what? He will find faith on the earth. That's why he comes. We just saw Daniel 12 and such. But he's exhorting them. In the meantime, in the face of this delay, pray. Faith is needed in that time. and so when will he come? Well, he will come, eventually, suddenly, and there'll be vindication. Don't lose heart, and wait for it. Now before we wrap this up, a few things. The, in the parable, the unjust judge, he's unrighteous. He's selfish. He's unjust. He's easily annoyed, and he's impatient, and he's not a good man. Compared to God, the opposite, the key point of contrast and what we're to learn from, eyes on him. He is righteous. He is unselfish and entirely just, and he hears the cries, and he's not annoyed, and he's patient but with good reason. The whole delay is the time of the church. It's the time when all the gospel of grace is going out. And the widow, she's the Jew seeking vindication, waiting for their kingdom, persistent and against all odds. You've promised this. The disciples are to pray and have that same expectation of their kingdom and cry out in the meantime. God will bring this all out. So we learn through contrast. God is the opposite of the unjust judge. He's the perfect judge with his own timetable, and in it, he will come and he will vindicate. So let's apply this to us as the Christian before we sign off. The spotlight here in this parable is on God, the good judge. He's the one who's patient. He's the one who's sovereign. He is the opposite of the unjust judge. We can learn and be encouraged as we behold him. And in he hears the cries of his elect. He identifies with the thirst for the justice and for the uh, vindication. And yet, yet he waits. What are we waiting for? Well, he desires that all get saved, First Timothy 2. He gives time for all to respond and believe on him, Second Peter 3. He is building his church in this time frame, and at some point as the gospel goes out, eventually the time will be right, and then he will say, we're done. And he will quickly come and vindicate. And it'll be his grace and his goodness that that's what's bringing about this delay. Now, we are children of the delay. If we're saved here, if you put your faith in Christ, as a Christian, we're of the church age, we're in Christ, we have eternal life. And that which saves us is his grace and his goodness. And that which has him delay is his same grace and goodness. So we wait with him. But man, is it hard a sin-cursed earth, sin-cursed humans, selfishness abounds, stuff happens it stinks sometimes, and we're in this delay, and it's not paradise. So we say, why, Lord? And then we realize this delay that we don't like, and where all this stuff happens at times, oh, that's the same delay in which I heard the gospel. That's the same time period where I got saved, and others are getting saved, and generations are getting saved. And when I'm saved, I have a permanent, altered future and a perfect paradise, so I can pray and wait. But I'm not waiting for the kingdom in the same sense as the church age. The final verse is Titus 2, verses 13 and 14. To the church, we're told to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We're anticipating the return of Jesus Christ coming in the air for his church called the rapture. We anticipate this just like we have promises of eternal life or forgiveness of sin or of his presence always with us. We have promises of a future inheritance, a future paradise, of the Holy Spirit being in us, of him being able to strengthen us in him. We have promises of his mercies enduring forever and of his guidance and of his answers to prayer. And we have promises of his unending unending, and constant grace. So we too always ought to pray for that coming of glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. It's coming anytime, and it'll be quick. And it's an act of faith as we pray and we wait for it. By it, we have the antidote to not lose heart. He's the God who is there, and he loves you, and he loves to hear from you. The opposite of what you might expect, right? He treats us in love and kindness. That's grace. That's a perfect concept for opposite day opposite day. We get treated in grace. And grace even has a power to change a life. In Titus 2, you can read it in verse 12 and 13. But even in the story of George Costanza, right? He has opposite day. Uh, let's, you know, He's got grace day, and suddenly he's a decent guy for a day. So it's powerful. Anyway, that's a bad example, but we connect all this with God. May you be persuaded of his love and his access. Talk to him. Relish that opposite stuff called grace. See the Lord who is opposite of that unjust judge and wait. Wait for it. He will come. He will answer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we thank you that you have such amazing kindness and goodness to us. Just again, the opposite of everything we would expect. And we thank you that you hold the future. You're sovereign. You will come, and you will come, and you are not—you are patient, and you are willing—that none, you don't want any to perish. One day, the time will be right. We thank you that we will be taken up with you, and for those who are left on earth, and the Jews, and the kingdom, that time will come exactly at the right time, soon after that, and they'll be vindicated. And so, before that, as you come for your church, be first. We thank you, as we can look forward to that. And we can just put our promise and our trust in your promises and your unwavering character. And so we pray, by your grace, we do not lose heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And always remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.